Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 4th, 2018, and this is episode 2284 of the Survival Podcast. It is listener feedback for September 4th, 2018. Yes, it is a Tuesday, but we're preempting two totally different things that could have been today's show. One, we've been doing the first Tuesday of the month, the Bug Out Trailer Show with Stephen Harris and I, and with this backing up against the uh, Memorial Day weekend and all, or Labor Day, I'm sorry, Labor Day weekend and all, uh, we decided that we would push it to the second Tuesday because this is kind of the first day back from a holiday and things like that. Uh, and next, Because of how things went last week, chiefly I took a day off and went fishing on a Monday. We haven't done a listener feedback show now for two weeks. So if I skipped it today and did a Just Jack show, um, we would we would you know, really have a huge backlog of stuff that would never even get a chance to get on the air. So I decided we'll go ahead and do a listener feedback show. And part of it was I had a lot of really cool different stuff than we usually have uh, in the queue. And it made it kind of a fun one to do. We got a lot of variety today. Um, I am going to say a little bit one more time about adult language on the Survival Podcast. It'll be a very short segment, but I'm really doing this as a warning for those of you who may be thinking about getting over to Instagram, uh, because some people have suggested at least the videos over there we call it Jack After Hours or something. So anyway, I'll explain that when we get to it. I have a question on cooking a duck without screwing it up. It's something I'm pretty good at, and I'll try to help you out there. Uh, kind of a, an article about truck driving, but it brings up a question. Is, is truck driving a good monetary on-ramp for young people? Um, Planning suburban fence lines with productive perennials. I'll give you some thoughts on that and some ideas on not hating yourself for it as well. Um, Off-grid freezer options with sm and small wood stoves and CBD oil. A guy managed to get three questions into one and did a good enough job on it that I will honor it and answer all three. A question on something called Antifuego, uh, which is something I've recommended. I, I call it fire ant murder juice, but it's all natural. Um, I'll tell you... What's happened with not being able to get it online anymore and where you might be able to find it and how you can make your own. And this is really the number one uh, weapon we use against those bastards here at TSP Ranch, a.k.a. Nine Mile Farm. Uh, next up, considerations for life when you're on a well and septic system. Uh, the direction of the U.S. solar energy in industry is, is rapidly changing. And uh, I'll talk to you about that. And it, this is like an article that really doesn't directly say that, but it, it it's the pattern recognition thing that you can see again. It's a way to make solar make more sense, but it costs more money initially. And I think you're going to figure out real quick where this, this industry is going here and how we're going to see a much faster rollout than people maybe would have thought possible. Good old capitalism, actually. Uh, 15 cities that people are moving to and why. And keeping fish fresh until you get home, or alive until you get home, depending on what you want to do with them. We'll talk about all of that more in just a moment. Before we uh, get into your uh, questions today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one day, is JM Bullion. You know, I have made a recommendation since almost the first episode of Survival Podcast. Like the first time the subject ever came up. 
about silver and gold. And with preppers, silver is kind of really even a bigger thing than gold. And I've always said that somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. And net wealth is not just your retirement portfolio. It's a total, what's, your, what's your value on paper that is reasonably liquid? So the equity in your home, things like that. Now, I'm fine with people who go lower than 5%, but kind of that's, that's kind of my target to get to over time with you know dollar cost averaging, not running out and buying silver when it's at the top of the market or something like that, which is a really dumb thing to do. Um, but if you're going to do this, I recommend that you pay as little for your silver as possible, buy it from a reputable source, and the best place I know to do that is JM Bullion. And this is why. Number one, reputable. They've just been around so long, and, and they're so well-known, and there's never been a problem with them or any kind of a fraud case or anything. So you, you know they're dependable and reputable. They've been with our audience now for six years. Six years, and I, I have heard almost nothing about them in the last five. The first year, we actually had a few complaints, and they weren't like any kind of not getting what you expected, but having some customer service issues. And this brings me to my next reason. So when that happened, I reached out to Michael, who's the president of the company, not some underling, and said, hey, man, here's some stuff that's going on. And his response was, thank you for letting me know, because this way I can do something about it. Nothing's more important to me than taking care of my customers. And once that ship tightened up, man, it just I never heard another word about it. But I know if something goes wrong, because humans are fallible, that I can reach out to the president of the company, not some guy that's like, well, I wish I could do something. But And the, honestly, when I talk to other silver houses, like, like Monix and Atmix, There was no way that I could talk to like the top person, which is what I want to do. That's why all my sponsors are generally smaller companies. So check them out today, jambullion.com. Remember, one of the best things you can do for the future of your kids or grandkids, start that little silver stockpile up for them. Get them a little treasure chest, birthdays and stuff like that. You know, silver's not very expensive. You know, under 20 bucks, you can get different silver rounds and things like that. Build it for them, explain the value to them, make that lasting investment in them, and make that investment in yourself at jmbullion.com. Next up, we got the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. That's, of course, bulkammo.com. Another company been with us forever. I don't think we have a sponsor in the two we brought on this year that ain't been with us over six years. That's just incredible. So remember that when it comes to all of our sponsors. But Bulk Ammo has been with us a long time. All the ammo you could want, good pricing, lightning-fast shipping, Great customer service. What more do I need to say? Well, you know what I'm going to say. Your gun, no ammo, expensive club. You've got to have ammo or the gun can't do what the gun is supposed to do. Best place I know to get your ammo is at BulkAmmo.com. And please remember, Bulk Ammo and JM Bullion both do discounts for members of the MSB. If you are an MSB member, you can just go log in at the Survival Podcast. You can click on Members there and log into your account. Check the Benefits section there and you can see the discounts that are available to you. So next up, let's go ahead and get into the feedback stuff. I want to start out today with, um, I sent out an email this morning. It'll be probably one of the last. There'll be, there'll be some occasions where it's like a special announcement or something that's time sensitive. But in general, from now on, if you're on the email list, you'll get one email a day at the end of the day. When I finish my last bit of the day, I throw everything into one email and send it out and do it manually. And the reason I did that, I've talked about it before, but just real quick, been using AWeber forever. And I don't know if it's something on my end with the RSS feed or something got screwed up at AWeber, but for two weeks in a row, I put out all my content every day. Emails didn't go out. And then, like, on a Saturday, like, all the email for the week went out in individual emails. So you got bombarded, like, 18 emails at once. This resulted in some people being very pissed off at me and cussing me out by email and stuff as though I did this to you on purpose. Um, so I, I went to this new 
standard about two weeks ago. When I did that, I didn't realize that I had basically set all the automation in Aweber so that when it sent things out, the links that you see would say the survivalpodcast.com slash whatever. They wouldn't be these weird kind of uh, reformatted links by Aweber that's used for tracking purposes. I don't consider the tracking to be that important, honestly. I, if you, I, I could see how many people come to the website from email, and that's all I need to know. So these emails were going out with these weird-looking links, and I think it screwed some people up, and it made them afraid that it was some kind of scam or something. My complaints uh, on people complaining to Aweber that I'm sending them unauthorized email went through the roof. Now, they're not high. We're talking like per email I'm getting like 10, but usually I get zero or one. Um, I guess it's just because of the format of the emails changed. But look, if you're getting my emails, you subscribed. I have never bought a, a lead or imported a list in my life I build email lists from scratch. That's why they're effective, because they're built from scratch. If you don't want my email anymore, please do me a favor. There's a little link at the bottom that says change subscriber options or unsubscribe. Click that. Don't go bitching Aweber, because let me tell you a secret. Do you know what Aweber does about it? Nothing. They don't do not a damn thing at all unless you get like 8 million uh, complaints or something like that. A couple dozen, they don't even care. They just tell you in your little stats. No one even looks at it. And then this is the, this is one thing I don't like. As much as I love Aweber, people complain they're not automatically unsubscribed. You'd think that they would do that, but they don't. So you complain the next day you still get another email. So if you don't want it, I'm not going to make you have it. But the reason I bring this up is one person commented on the post I did about all this today explaining all the changes in the one email that I sent out to everybody saying, hey, this is important, take a look at it, and said, my only suggestion would be a little less adult language on the show, and I've covered this many times over the year, it's not going to happen. You know, I built this show for over 10 years now, doing it a certain way, and, and being authentic. And the fact that once in a while I'll say shit instead of poop or crud or whatever, if that really offends you, then this is probably not the programming for you. And nothing against the guy that said it, but because here's the real reason I'm bringing it up. As I've said in the last couple of weeks as well, Dorothy is now managing my Instagram page. We're on Instagram at It's a Jack Life. I-T-S, a Jack Life. It's a Jack Life on Instagram. And we're doing these um, 30 Laws of Life. Spirit goes 30 Laws of Life. Many of them you've heard on the show throughout the years, little bits and pieces. Uh, and many maybe you haven't. And we're putting out every day a, an image. We're trying to use as many images that are our own instead of stock images as possible. They're sort of like a meme. They have the saying on them and what number law of life it is. And then later that same day, a video goes out. And that video is basically a one-minute or less video because it's all the time they give you on Instagram where I talk about that principle. And I'm going to tell you I use the F word quite a bit there. So people have said like it's like Jack After Hours or Jack After Dark, and they like it. And that's fine. But because I don't generally use that word on the show as I'm promoting Instagram here, it kind of came to me today when I was responding, saying, here's my disclaimers and policies and all, here's what I always have done, not going to happen, that I probably owe it to you guys to let you know as I'm promoting our Instagram that you will hear a little bit more adult language on Instagram. I'll also say this. I don't believe in the concept of profane words. I don't believe in the concept of bad words. I believe in the concept of profane thoughts and bad thoughts. I don't use the F word on the air because it goes to a point where I would feel 
that I am required to mark my show as an explicit show because that's the perception people have. So to make everybody's life easier, I don't do it. And on the rare occasion that I have something that I feel really calls for it, and I say it or I let a guest say it, I mark that individual episode as explicit. So when it goes into Stitcher and iTunes and all, it's, it's there and it's marked out. And I usually do a disclaimer at the beginning saying, hey, or some point, like, you're going to hear some, something you don't want to hear, skip, you know, like that. So I try to keep that expectation met. But overall, I again, I don't think words are bad. I think what can be expressed with words that are all considered completely acceptable words can be extremely vulgar and extremely profane. And, and, and someone saying shit or ass, like, if that bothers you, what you've done is you've let somebody else define what words are okay and not okay. And yes, I know I'm doing it myself with the F word, but I don't do it in my life. I just do it on, on the show because of just basically, it makes my job of marketing my show through various platforms easier. But I really would challenge most adults I'm not saying to start using these words if you would not. Because be yourself. That's one of the things I've always taught. Be yourself. What you do matters, right? Um, but actually having a problem with somebody else using them, again, you've let society tell you that a word is okay or not okay. Let's, let's look at a word like poop, okay? Most people would say, well, that's not really a bad word, right? I mean, you know, poop. you got to call it something, okay? Most people would be okay with the word crap. Some people, it starts to go a little far, right? Um, I don't know anybody that wouldn't be okay with the word excrement. If, you, if you're not okay with that, then I, I don't know what the hell to tell you, right? But if all of a sudden you say, well, don't step in shit instead of don't step in the crap, and all of a sudden now it's offensive, why? Because the FCC says so? They don't, they don't get to set rules here on podcasts, thank God. Right, But really, why? What made us determine that one word for the same thing that we have all these other words for was a bad word? You see what I'm saying? And so that's just kind of my little mental liberation for you today. Uh, and again, I don't feel that I actually use a tremendous amount of adult language, as, as is called by others anyway. I, I call it that because I don't know what else to call it, so you'll understand it, um, on the show. I mean, there's times when we're talking about certain things where that's going to come up a lot, but if, you know, you're not going to hear me say a lot of those things if we're talking about gardening, or our next one is going to be talking about you know cooking a duck. I, I don't think that I'm going to you know use the f word. So let's go into that because boy, I kind of wanted to when I <laughs> read this email what this guy did to a, a beautiful piece of meat like duck. This one actually came in as an expert counsel question for Keith Snow, but when I forwarded him the email and my email chain back and forth with, with Keith, I, I think he took the approach of, this is a really simple answer, so I'm not going to do a response. I'm going to do a response because I think it's actually one that could benefit a lot of people. Uh, here's what the guy says, and this comes in from Matthew. Matthew says, uh, how well done should a duck be cooked? Any tips for someone new to cooking duck? Details. My wife and I have ducks and we sell their eggs. Thanks, Jack. We have a great success. So we get male ducks that graduate early, plus we start starting to do meat ducks due to interest from nearby restaurants, Duclairs, Cayugas, and Rowans. Those are all great meat breeds, by the way. The first one we did, we followed a recipe online, whole duck plucked. The flavor was great, but the meat was well done, kind of tough and not very pleasant. I believe it could be it called to bake the duck for three to four hours. 
We read before that duck should be cooked like steak, preferably like medium steak. Is this true? If so, is there any internal temperature we're looking to go to or just cook for so long? Thank you, Matthew. Um, this was the short response that I had. Um, yeah, I sent it on to Keith, but in the interest of not destroying more beautiful meat, it's true, you should do that. Personally, I bone out breast and cook it quite rare. The thigh and legs are slow cooked. I usually do them as a confit. The rest of the duck is used to make stock, and I'll also talk about rendering fat here in a minute. Uh, the, th the breast and thigh and leg meat are such different cuts of meat. Unless you can do a hot roast like the Chinese do with a crispy skin, which is almost impossible to pull off in your regular oven, it's better to part the mouth and cook them whole. So let's talk about how how we cook a duck breast and, and just get it to be the beautiful piece of meat that it really is and not ruin it. And the, the key here is simplicity. So I'm going to tell you how I do a duck when I have a whole duck, whether I've bought it or whether it's one that we've slaughtered Uh, or one that's even come out of the wild. And the only thing about a wild duck is they usually it's a little bit faster to cook because they're smaller, obviously. You're talking about mallards and wood ducks. So the first thing you have to do is you have to take everything you think about a duck because it's a poultry that you're, you're assigning to the world of chicken and just get rid of it. You would never see me recommend to cook a, a rare piece of chicken. It's just, not only is it, has some significant, especially from uh, chicken that is, you know, from our, ma our, our regular distribution system, uh, significant chance of, of illness, but it just wouldn't be very appetizing. Certain meats do need to be fully cooked, and chicken and some other poultry definitely is up there. It just is not pleasant. Duck is like beef, and you need to cook it like beef, especially the breast. And you have to look at the breast as being like a beef cutlet or something like that, a very fine cut piece of beef. But it's got something that beef generally doesn't. It's got a much more luxurious fat, and it's got a skin. So what I'll do is I'll take my knife and I'll go down on the edge of the breast and then just take that breast cutlet off on both sides. And then I'll take my knife and I'll score the skin, three little hatch marks in the skin. You can go back and cross, you know, do like a cross cut as well. But you don't really want to go all the way end to end, just like maybe two-thirds of the way from end of skin to end of skin. Because you don't want it to peel back too much. That's why I do just three little ones, maybe even half the distance. It's just going to help the fat render. Get a cast iron or carbon steel skillet. Put down just a little bit of peanut oil or another oil of your choice to can handle high temperatures if you don't like peanut oil or you're allergic to it. And then as, as soon as that pan really begins to warm up, it doesn't have to get screaming hot. You just get it a little bit warm so we're not putting ice-cold duck down on there. Put that duck skin side down on that pan. And cook it until it really begins to render the fat out of the duck skin. And you'll be able to tell. And that skin begins to crisp a little bit. When that happens, flip it over onto the non-skin side and cook it um, for about two minutes at the most on the non-skin side. This is like a medium temperature, not a really high temperature here, okay? And your oven should have been preheated to about 400 degrees. So you get one to two minutes on the non-skin side of the duck. Flip it back over on the skin, take your skillet straight away into the, into the oven. About six minutes, maybe five Maybe four. Like, you have to figure out your oven and how long you really cook it and whatever. But 
when you're when you know get it out, don't touch it. Take it out, set the skillet on the stovetop or on a, 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 a trivet or something like that, and leave it alone for a couple of minutes. Take it out of the pan, set it on a cutting board. Let it sit another couple of minutes. Let the temperature inside it come down. It's like steak. You don't want to cut right into it. It is going to be rare. It's going to be pretty rare. And if you cut into it now, not only will you lose all the beautiful juices, but it may actually kind of bleed a little bit, and that's not very appetizing. The same thing happens with steaks. Give it a good five minutes or even more to come down to more like a room temperature. Then slice it on the bias, and it is fantastic. Take the grease drippings from the pan and save them somewhere. They can be used with what we're going to talk about next, which was, is called a confit. All right? That's your rest. Salt and pepper is the only seasoning you need on it. It is fantastic. I will tell you that older birds tend to have tougher breast meat, and it's not as good if you have like a cold drake that's two years old. It's going to be somewhat tough. And then you may want to do some sort of a slow cook type thing, like a duck pot pie or something like that. But a young duck, this is what you do. The thighs and the leg. Take those off as a leg quarter. So take your knife and go right in at the ball joint where the thigh meets the, the main breast of the bird. Cut through there. And just take that whole leg, thigh unit off. You can take the wings off. Just discard. Well, put the tip into the scrap pile. Don't discard it. But don't don't bother cooking the wing tip of a duck. And you won't get much off a wing. So I generally set the wings aside as well. But you could confit the wings with the legs. It'll work. What we're going to do, we're going to put some salt and pepper and some orange peel, a little bit of sage, thyme, and rosemary And we're going to rub down these legs with that. And we're going to put that in the refrigerator overnight. We want a small crock because you want to completely cover this with fat. If you have it because you cook a lot of duck or something or because you, you can buy it from some specialty stores. You can buy it from a website called D'Artagnan. The best thing to use, traditional, duck fat. It's like the duck is its own little cooking kit, right? But whatever you use, you can take the duck fat that you've rendered off from the breast and add it to that fat. And you should. And you can save that fat and use it over and over and over again. I have used peanut oil. I have used plain old lard for this. I have used butter. The one I liked the least was butter. I felt that for some reason the, everything came out much saltier. Uh, and, of course, salted butter, obviously, is salted, but it just seemed, it seemed I, I don't know what it was, but butter was my least favorite thing to confit with. Pure duck fat is my favorite. You, and you can just look up a recipe for this, but basically you're going you're gonna to cover the duck in its own fat or whatever fat you have. You're going to put it in the oven at a low temperature, and you're going to cook it for a couple hours. And when I say low temperature, I'm talking like 220 degrees. It is a luxury. It is duck confit is served at some of the finest restaurants, and really, what a cool thing to do is, is when you're done cooking it, bring it out, let it begin to cool a little bit so it sets some, but don't let the fat completely like gel on you, because if you try to take it out when it's hot, it's going to fall apart. So let it come down to temperature to you know like a hundred and fifty degree range, and take it out and set it on a cutting board and let it again continue to cool. And then right before you serve it, just drizzle a little fat into the pan and crisp the skin right at the end, right before you serve it. And you'll, you'll those two things, and you'll never cook a duck any other way ever again 
when it comes to the breasts and the legs and thighs. Once you try those two things, you'll be hooked, which is nice because one duck, two pieces of breast meat, meal for two. One duck, two leg quarters, meal for two. Now what do we do with the rest? If you want to, and if the duck has enough fat, or if you have multiple ducks where this will be worth it, take all of the skin off whatever's remaining of the duck. And sometimes you'll find like fatty deposits inside the duck, anything you can get, the tail, uh, the wingtips, all of that stuff. Take all the skin, cut it up in little pieces, get a pot, of wa a pot on the stove. Put about an inch of water, maybe a little less than an inch of water, three-quarters of an inch, depending on how much you have to work with or how big the pot is. Bring that to a simmer and put your duck skin in there. What's going to happen is it's going to start rendering the fat out of the duck skin. And eventually you're going to boil all the water off. This is a real slow simmer, not a fat. You're going to burn it if you do it hot and fast. So a nice slow simmer where the water is just barely boiling, and all of a sudden you'll start to see it go to a, it almost looks like butter. It's just a beautiful fat coming out of the skin. And you just slowly simmer those in their own fat until they become little cracklings. And then you separate those off and don't throw those away. Those are the best little cracklings. They're so fantastic on a salad. They never make it that far with me. I just eat them. And then you can put that fat in your fat collection jar. If you do this long enough, you'll end up with enough duck fat to be doing your confits with pure duck fat. And that's this is, this is the French method of using a duck, like the, the French housewife method. All of this works together. Now, everything else that, that came, you know, the, the, the core, the frame of that bird, the wings, all of that stuff, what do you do with those? You throw all those bones in the oven on like 400 degrees for like 20 minutes just till they're brown. And then just make a bone stock with that like you normally would. How, you know, however you make a bone stock. I know I'm going along with this because it is such a fantastic meat and it's such a simple meat to use. And it seems complicated because we don't really eat a lot of duck in America. And what you end up with then is one duck gives you a fat yield, it gives you a confit dinner, it gives you a breast dinner, and it gives you a stock. And if you have a couple ducks, all those little pieces of duck, and just do a duck soup. It sounds like a thing that people make a fun of, like they say when you screwed something up, you made duck soup. Duck soup, little parsley, uh, little celery, uh, little carrot, uh, little fresh fennel. I mean, thyme and rosemary, and the and duck broth itself is just one of the most succulent, sweet forms of a broth or stock you could ever make. It is it is just beautiful, and it comes out. You, once you skim whatever fat you have left, it comes out abundantly clear. And if you do what I have said, which is you go ahead and skin everything and use that skin to render fat, you'll find duck has almost no fat in the in the meat. So your stock will have almost no fat on it anyway. And it is, again, it is sublime. Duck stock, those of you who have made it know what I'm talking about. So long first one, but guys, go out, get a duck, give this a try. It will change the way you look at poultry in America. As far as the temperature... The United States government says you should hook duck to 170 degrees. And you know what? Screw them. Most restaurants, when they do a duck breast, cook it to between 135 and 140 degrees. There's no reason you can't do that. Yes, it is safe. Do not equate the duck with a chicken farm. It's not the same thing. If, if, that was, if it was dangerous to cook duck to 135 to 140 degrees then there would be dead people everywhere in America because every high-end restaurant that makes duck breast, that's what they do. Every single one of them. 
Uh, and if you do it right, that skin's crispy, too. <laughs> All right, next one. So the next one comes from John in Park, and here's what he said. He said, might be good for a younger person to drive for a few years, save like crazy, then move on toward their real goals with a stack of cash. He's talking about the trucking sector, and he's a quote from this article. In 2016, the trucking sector was short more than 36,000 drivers, according to the American trucking industry, which expected that number to surpass 63,000 in 2018. By 2026, it could swell to 174,000. In order to keep up with demand, the trucking industry would need to hire nearly 900,000 drivers through 2026, or about 90,000 each year, the trade group said. Owing to the current labor force conditions, trucking companies are actually uh, hiking driver pay in an effort to attract qualified applicants. Um, but the upshot of the article is that the highest paid jobs in trucking over the next 20 years uh, are going to be replaced by autonomous vehicles, which I, I completely agree with. But that's not tomorrow. So I think John's point here is it's not that hard to get a CDL. It really isn't. And even the starting pay can be pretty decent. And once you have any experience, you can make better money right now. And there's, you know, once you, you're, you're capable, companies are fighting for drivers right now. Just flat out fighting for drivers. Because you have that much of a shortfall. Again, they're saying the shortfall in 2018 could be over 60,000 drivers, not enough. So does this make sense for, let's say, the 21-year-old kid that's, you know, bussing tables or something? I can go make some cash and use that to springboard my life establishment fund. I think it can, but this is one of the things that I've noticed. Most people that start driving a truck... They seem to end up driving a truck for the rest of their life. Unless they have some kind of a major life event where they have some kind of complete retool, uh, even people that leave trucking tend to always go back there. And I think it's because the money is decent, and if you're qualified, you're qualified, and there's pretty much always work. So if someone goes off and tries something else, and it doesn't work, and they get in a bad way, then it's easy to run back to. The other thing is young people and money are usually parted quickly because they say a fool and his money is soon parted, and most young people are stupid when it comes to money. And, and, and I even, I'm not talking about just stupid people in general. I'm talking about most young people, even what you would call smart young people. Most young people do not manage money well. So I don't think this is so much about trucking though that is one onboard. I think there are some things out there that people can do that pay well. And that a person that went out and started doing it at 21 and put in like five years by the time they're 26 could have a really big nest egg, especially if they partnered it up with some of the other things we talk about, like tiny house living or travel trailer living or something like that, which I think really can benefit the young people more than anybody else. Um, you learn to do without you learn to get by. You learn how to fix shit because shit breaks. Um, and by the time you're ready then to move into uh, a, a, you know, a, a regular home and life, etc., instead of moving in with just this mountain of debt on top, you can move in very equity-heavy into a home, still have lots of money saved up, kind of figure out what you want to do in your life. Maybe it leads to starting a business. Maybe it leads to another career. Maybe you use the money to pay to go through a trade school that expands what you can do. Um, and and the, the answer is whatever that would be will change in the next 10 years. But there's going to be jobs driving trucks for 10 years. In spite of all this automation that's going to take away so many jobs, there's going to be jobs for at least 10, 
more or, or more years moving a truck from one side of the country to the other. Um, and it, even the article says that the, the the autonomous vehicles will first be used to you know replace a guy that's driving from New York to L.A. and back. And that the jobs where you're you know carrying multiple loads for several smaller customers, kind of route jobs, those are going to be the ones that are going to last the longest. They're also right now the ones that pay the worst. The average pay for a job like that's thirty six grand. So again, I'm not even saying it's it's. If you're a young person out there, there's ways to hustle and make some bucks. I mean, the the smart person with the right eye and acumen can be flipping shit on eBay and making you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year in their first year. I mean, that's the opportunity. This is why I when I hear well, you you had it easier in the older generations and no, no, we didn't. All, all what I do for a living, I couldn't have done when I was twenty five. There wasn't even the technology available to do this when I was 25 years old. And the rudimentary technology that sort of kind of did it, no one was using it to listen. So there's so much opportunity out there today. But I think that one thing that young people have to be aware of is you get in a position where you're making a little bit more money than you're used to. It becomes really easy to spend it all. That's the upshot here. You've got, if you can go into something and say, well, this is how much I'm going to make and this is how much money I need to live off of, and you can stick to that live off of budget, if you can pretend that other money doesn't even exist, then, like I'm saying, people well before they're 30 years old can be buying homes damn near for cash. Certainly can be setting themselves up for a life of success and a life on their own, own terms, and living life the way they want to versus the way society thinks they should. And, and there's there's just a plethora of things that you can do to make that happen. So if it's not going to be entrepreneurship early on, then find one of these gigs that pay well. Hustle your ass off, learn your ass off, make as much as you can, but stockpile it. Be like the squirrel with the nuts in the forest, man. you gotta, you got to squirrel that stuff away. Um Next one comes in from Karim down in Austin. It says, howdy, howdy Jack, long time, no questions. Uh, been slacking but fixing that now. Question, trying to figure out what kind of productive bushes I could plant along the fence line of my property, picture attached, would be best suited for Texas weather and produce either fruit or nuts. Thanks in advance, Karim. Well, nuts, i I got to tell you, for the type of smaller backyard you're talking about, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that's really going to work there. I think in some of the more northeastern climates, the northwestern climates, you could look at filbert or hazelnut. So some of you that are up there, you can consider that. Uh, down here in Texas, I don't know a nut that's a compact tree that's going to produce for you, that you would use like a shrub or a hedgerow. You can grow all the pecans you want in this state, just you know, the, from the picture you had one or two of those in the backyard and the whole place is completely shaded in, and it's a long time to wait for uh, product. There's a couple different things you could do. One thing that grows fantastic in Texas is muscadines. So you could certainly plant muscadines and use the fence as a trellis. Another thing that you could do is something like blackberry uh, or raspberry. But my experience has been that blackberries do a hell of a lot better here than raspberries do. Um, a primocane style blackberry would be a really great blackberry to do on a fence line because basically uh, they produce on the first year's uh, cane. So you're going to get two harvests where space is critical, or if you are willing to take a fall harvest only, you can just print them in the ground every year. And that new cane will come up and fruit its first year, but it's going to fruit late in the year instead of early in the year. I've gotten much better results out of the early fruit 
but I don't have irrigation everywhere. Your yard looks like it'd be really easy to irrigate, so that'd be another thing to consider. Autumn olive seedlings would do pretty well there. Um, small trees, espaliered against the fence as though they were vines, would do well there. Um, you could certainly just do kind of the backyard orchard thing and get you know semi-dwarfed, even full-size rootstock trees of whatever you want, but peaches and plums uh, seem to be die-hard, effective producers in our climate. Uh, and then you want to do the backyard orchard thing where you prune them to a very small canopy and you maintain them as smaller trees. This is what I'm going to tell you, though. Be careful with planting things along a fence line. It's a great space and it's a great strategy. But you need to do one of two things. It needs to be so close to the fence that it's almost part of the fence, or it needs to be far enough away from the fence that it's easy to put a lawnmower between the trees and the fence. Either one works. If you put the trees a couple feet off the fence, which is just the natural human inclination to do that, you end up with a whole bunch of weed eating you have to do around your tree trunks, which is a pain in the ass, uh, and it, it just can be a pain in the ass. Now, I will say if you're going to do that, you can make it work, and the weed eating gets a lot easier if you just get the four-inch uh, flexible pipe that you use to put in like French strains and stuff like that. Cut a piece of that about eight to ten inches long, and then take a razor knife and just slit it right down the middle. And then just pull it apart and put it around your tree trunk. And that'll basically put a little place there so when you weed eat, when you get too close, because you will, uh, you hit that instead of the tree, it gives you time to pull back and you don't damage and kill your poor young trees. But those are kind of the, the, the things I would go with there. I would either do blackberries uh, I would do or grapes or trees that I would prune to a smaller size. If you wanted it to make it like a true hedgerow, like where you want the fence to just disappear and it's your neighbor's problem, and you just want the, the hedgerow to be the fence, I would go with autumn olives. And there's some pretty interesting cultivars you can check out. I believe it's uh, Burnt Ridge Nursery. Uh, Rain Tree has uh, a, a variety of other things, and you can just look around different autumn olive seedlings. But that will grow very shrub-like, and it's easy to maintain at whatever height you want. And I know that would be a, a kind of a monocrop type thing there, but it's going to produce... It's going to produce in its second year. It's going to be extremely reliable. It's disease-hardy as hell. It's a nitrogen fixer. Um, it's easy to maintain and prune. They taste good. They make good meat. I mean, so those are the options I would consider if I were you, Karim. Uh, next up, we have a question here from Nate. Nate says, I'm brand new to the world of podcasts. Maybe a week. I'm already addicted to your show. Uh, I had no idea there was such a huge community of like-minded people. Your show seems to uh, be spot on with my entire life. I apologize for a longer email, but you motivate the shit out of me, and I'm excited to have found your show and share my story. Not sure if you actually read these emails, because it sounds like you have a pretty solid following. I still wanted to share. I do read them all, Nate. I don't read every word of all of them, especially long ones like yours, uh, but occasionally I do if one kind of hooks my interest. Um, he's been out of the military for about six years. Uh, he's lived in motorhomes, campers, and warehouses, started a small business, helped run a small family-owned sawmill, got a nasty motorcycle accident two and a half years ago, put me out of the game for a year, recently just moved to Washington State about four months ago where I purchased two acres and I'm in the process of rebuilding a small 200-square-foot off-grid cabin that was beyond the point of disrepair. 31-year-old combat veteran, my first piece of property that I plan making my home, been pretty rough going so far. Been in a completely new area, no support group, doing all the work myself. 
extensive list of health problems and disabilities, but I feel like we all benefit from strongly, uh, will strongly outweigh the trouble in the long run. Found your show at a perfect time when I was losing motivation and feeling down about my progress and abilities. Your show helped me to put me back in myself in check and turn it around. So thank you for what you were doing. Here's a couple of questions that pertain to my current situation. If it makes it on the show, I'd be thrilled. Well, first, Nate, no, I usually don't read especially that long of an email on the air. But I, I think there's an opportunity here before I even go into your questions to help you and maybe help some other people. Uh, one, it is amazing the light that turns on in people's lives when you realize the simple truth of you are not alone. You're not the only one that thinks this way. You're not the only person that thinks life has gone crazy for the majority of people, that most people spend their time worried about shit that doesn't matter, that it's not crazy to plan for hard times because, gee, sometimes they actually happen, that putting a, a premium on personal liberty and freedom and being able to feed yourself and all the things that go with that above keeping up with the Joneses is a great idea. You're not the only one that thinks that way. But I think a lot of people that find that in the show maybe don't take advantage of just how much community there is in the communities and sub-communities within the TSP uh, landscape. And one of the places I would really encourage you to check out, Nate, is uh, the Zello Group, which is something you can use on an app on your phone or on your computer, and they have their procedures to get in the door so that they don't get... Because it's like the biggest, most successful group on Zello. And uh, so there, there's like... There is, you know, some, you got to, you know, follow the protocol, I guess, to get approved. Uh, but you sound like a perfect candidate to benefit from talking to those folks. Many of them are going through similar situations and have gone. And you're going to run up against crap. It's going to be difficult to figure, like, how do I do this? How, there will be people on there that know. There are people on there that live off-grid in small cabins right now that have built them from scratch. So I really say, you know, get involved with that. Um, get over to Facebook and join the Survival Podcast Facebook forum. You can find a link uh, on the website as well. Uh, not the face You can join the Facebook page, but the forum is really where the interactivity is at. Post about what you're doing there. Check out another Facebook group I talked about last week called Shed to House. I know that you're in a different situation. You're not doing a shed conversion, but I think that when you're trying to make 200 square feet livable, no matter what the shell's made out of, doing the inside work is probably the same. So those are some things that I advise you to take advantage of. And don't forget about our old school forum, man. We have an old school PHP uh, uh, boards forum. You can find the link on the website to that. Get in there. And there's a, you know, there's a ton of community still active there. But there's also just a, a, a huge archive of information on the types of things that you're going to want to do. And the more you get that message reaffirmed, I am not alone. The more motivated you'll become and the more successful you'll be in what you want to accomplish. Winning in life is 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 90% mental and only 10% physical. The amount of physicality necessary to, to set your life up, you know, at times it seems like this is crazy because the work can feel really hard, but in the end, it's not really that much. If someone in a wheelchair can do it, then someone that's otherwise able-bodied can do it, right? So, but when we have the right mental state and we have that opportunity to go put an hour's work in or sit on the computer for an hour, what do we do? We go put the hour's work in. So avail yourself of these subcommittees. Now let me try to help you with your questions. Do you have any recommendations for wood stoves and small living space? Will a larger stove work if you use less fuel or will it be redundant? Also, is there any wiggle room and clearance space measurements? I don't have much space to work with, but I don't want it to be dangerous. 
Um, I don't think you want a big stove in a 200 square foot um, situation. I, I really don't. Uh, it's you're going to just be hot. <laughs> I think is the way to look at that. There, uh, I'm going to suggest one. Our audience, if you're out there and you have solutions for Nate here, comment in today's show notes. Let him know what you would recommend. I started looking for cost-effective solutions for you. I spent about two hours on this, uh, looking at various people doing tiny homes, small cabins everywhere. And the thing that came back over and over again was the Guide Gear wood stove, a couple different names, etc., but it's put out by the people at Sportsman's Guide. It is available on Amazon. I have a link to where you can get it on Amazon. Um, it's like $79 to $100. Bucks. Uh, and I don't care where you get it. I just have a link to Amazon because I am an affiliate and also because I know you're seeing what I'm talking about. But if you go on uh, YouTube, there are some things you need to do to make sure it's safe when you install it indoors, because technically it's not an indoor stove. But, like, hundreds of small house type people are using this thing, and it's the one they all seem to come back to. Uh, another option is to consider doing a rocket mass stove. If I didn't say that, Paul Wheaton would probably, somebody would tell him and he would explode into a f ball of flames. So you might want to check out the work that Paul's doing with, um, with rocket mass stoves. However, in a 200-square-foot uh, cabin that you're not building from scratch, you're trying to fix up, you know, I I'll tell you what, guys. I love what Paul does, and I think rocket mass heaters are really, really interesting. I do think there is a place for a $79 wood stove that you can put in with a few pieces of pipe and a few modifications and a heat shield and throw wood in. You're not going to freeze to death this winter. I think there's really a place for that. I would also say, you know, do consider propane for this application. You know, a 100-pound propane tank and, and a big buddy heater, and you're squared for probably the whole, uh, the whole winter. So, you know, like, do consider that. Uh, I, I love wood heat. I love the way it feels. I love if you have a place where you can gather wood for next to nothing, and, and heating that size of a space won't take a lot of wood. But, man, you know, your first year heading into winter, if you got the budget for the propane, you're talking about a $100 heater and a tank, and all you got to do is make sure you don't run out. Uh, that, there's... There is some value in that as well. So, and, you know, you're also talking about a thing like you can turn it off when it's not really like you're not going to worry about everything freezing up inside uh, and you're gone. And when you come home, you just click it on and in, you know, 10 minutes, place is warm uh, at that kind of a square footage. So I just thought I'd throw that in there as well. So those are uh, some thoughts I have on that. But any, like, I would say look to the small house community, the tiny house community for this. There, go to YouTube, check out videos, see the different stoves. I've seen some little wood stoves. Now I'm talking like, you know, about as big as a toolbox in some of these tiny houses that do a fantastic job. So, so, but stick to something small and efficient. Unless you really have plans to expand the square footage of this place, your typical full-size wood stove, I think you'll just end up with your windows open with the damn thing on. Um... As far as clearances and stuff, I can't comment on that generically because I don't know exactly what situation that you're in, but you need to make sure whatever you do, obviously, is safe. Uh, next, do I know of any uh, energy-efficient deep freezers? He runs all his power from a small solar setup. Uh, right now he has a mini fridge with a small freezer space that works, but love to be able to store meat through the winter. Um, so, Robert 
uh, no, I'm sorry, ready-made Roberts, the owner, but ready-made resources uh, has a whole group of 12 volt and 120 AC that does they do one or the you know either or power supplies uh, that are small freezers or small refrigerators depending on how you set them, and these are about as big as like a cooler. That would be a, a pretty big expansion, but I don't really know the power requirements. I will tell you this. The staff at Ready-Made Resources is badass. If you explain to them what you have, they will tell you, yes, that will work, or no, it won't. Or they'll say, yeah, you know, you might need to add a panel or two. But they will help you make that decision. So that's one thing you can do and take a look at. The other thing, though, is I just thought, well, what is the most energy-efficient deep freezers available? And right now, General Electric, their smaller chest freezers in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 square feet. So they have a 5, a 7, and a 10. All of them run in, when you do the average cost of electricity in the United States, to run them for a year between $26 and $37 a year. So that could, I, I didn't do the math. I don't know what type of solar array you have. I don't know how much battery uh, backup you have. I don't know if you, you know, you have the ability, and I would, to have a small generator to top things up when things aren't working out. But it would seem to me that even, you know, a, a small but conventional deep freezer that takes less than thirty dollars a year to run on grid, you should be able to run that off grid. And there's some things you can do, Nate, to improve the efficiency even more. Every deep freezer will have one side of the four sides plus the top that's a hot side. And when it's running, it's been plugged in for a while, you can just stick your hand on it. You'll figure out what side it is. It's In my case, with the ones that I've had over the years, it's typically been, if you're looking at it, when you lift up, you know, you're standing where you can lift up and stick your head down there and pull stuff out, your right side, its left side, generally is where I found it. But I don't know that that's you know, a brand thing or whatever. But if you take and put foam board insulation on the other three sides plus the roof, and you can paint that and make that look kind of nice and increase the insulation, you will increase the efficiency and it will work even better. But you can't do that on the hot side. It needs a place to dump its heat. So that, that is another option that you could do to make them even more efficient. I have links to... Um, the ready-made resources page with these 12-volt uh, ones on them that are smaller. And as far as, again, the appliance brand name, I would look into General Electric. Then he says, number three, what are your thoughts on growing hemp and making your own CBD oil? What would the actual cost in comparison be to buying it from the store? I have no idea, but I would buy it from the store. Um, I don't know what the laws are on growing hemp in Washington State as a private citizen. I do think that maybe, like California, they now allow actually the cultivation of cannabis. Uh, you know, I think it's like two plants or four plants or something. It has to be indoors or whatever. But if you're growing enough hemp to make your own CBD oil, I don't know anything about the process, but I think you need a significant amount to make it worth doing. And that means outdoors, and even though it's hemp and it's not cannabis, I just don't think that it makes a lot of sense. If somebody out there knows better than me, fine. But to me... In a lot of places, there's just no problem if you're buying a true, over-the-counter, made-from-hemp CBD oil. 
and that keeps you out of trouble, and I don't want my advice to get you in trouble with the Department of Making You Sad, Nate. And since you're new around here, I'll tell you, the Department of Making You Sad is the overall catchphrase for all government, and all government intrusion into your life. Inspectors, you know, busybodies, tax agencies, etc., Department of Making You Sad. And I just think you're inviting something into your life you don't need, And that right now is probably not the time for this. Like, Because here's what I'm going to say. There's a lot of things that you need to do before winter and over the next year to take this place and turn it into a true homestead. And you don't need something complicated and potentially troubling as another thing to do. Like, you're going to have to learn how to garden probably, is, I'm assuming. Right. You know, you might be uh, sharpening up your hunting and trapping skills this year. Um, there's going to be a lot of work to be done and something that's, in, as far as I know, needlessly complicated when there's an over-the-shelf product that, personally, I don't think you can financially beat. Uh, it's not that expensive, and it's one of those things that generally, it's interesting to know how to do it, but if you compare it to something like essential oils and what it takes to make an ounce of peppermint essential oil and how much peppermint that takes, it just... I kind of feel like you'd be in the same vein there. Anybody that's making your own CBD oil, let us know. Anybody thinks you can help Nate in any way, prove to him what he says is true, not alone. Get on the uh, board today and uh, comment for this episode. Uh, next up, uh, Jerry, uh, and this is anybody in the South, you're going to want to hear this probably. He says, I've heard you talk about Antifuego in the past, but I cannot find it for my for sale any place online. Do you still buy it, or what has replaced it? Um, Gardens Alive is a company that actually manufactures a product called Antifuego. And they used to sell it online, and they don't anymore. And it's probably because it's heavy. You know, you're buying one-gallon jugs of this stuff. And it just makes shipping high, and it probably just didn't sell that well. And if it leaks, it's, it makes a mess, and then you get a mad customer. And, and I think what eventually happened, they just decided, the hell with it, we're just going to stick to our retail distribution channel. So the place I would check locally, anywhere where fire ants are a problem, would be, you know, you check your box stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. I've never seen it there. But Russell Feeds is a local place we bought all our duck feed from and we'll soon be buying from again. Um, they uh, have it. I saw it just the other day, just by happenstance. I happened to be in there. I went, oh, they have Antifuego. I was in the aisle that had all the garden amendments and stuff like that and just noticed there's jugs of it down there on the floor. One gallon, I think they were like 27 bucks or something like that. So check your local smaller retail, you know, uh, there's a, a garden center called Callaway's. There's another one called Mike's. They're kind of small chains, places like that. Any place that generally sells organic soil fertilizers and stuff like that is a smaller place. It seems like Gardens Alive is pretty big on those types of people as their distribution channel. Or you can make your own. What is it made of? It's made of compa compost tea, uh, horticultural molasses, liquid molasses, and orange oil. That's what it's made of. Now, what is made of compost tea and liquid molasses and a little bit of apple cider vinegar? That's another thing that goes in it um, that we use all the time anyway. Garrett juice. Garrett juice. If you take and you mix up a one-gallon soil drench of Garrett juice per its label and add about a tablespoon of orange oil to it and mix it up, you've made antifuego. So now you can just go buy orange oil. Here's another secret. 
about an ounce of orange oil to a gallon is enough to kill the ants dead. The orange oil is what does it. It's what gets in there and really makes it, kills them. Because they have an exoskeleton and orange oil is a solvent, it actually is an insect skeletal solvent. It dissolves their exoskeleton. So unlike us, where we have meat on the outside and bone on the inside, the ants basically have a shell. They have an outside skeleton and an inside meat. And when you pour orange oil on an ant, that outside skeleton just melts away. Not good for them, right? Uh, but good for you, because they're gone. And as long as we melt the queens, the whole mound goes away. The soil amendments, the molasses, the apple cider vinegar, etc., one thing that does, it attracts a bunch of microorganisms into the area and ups the activity of things like beneficial nematodes and stuff like that. And ants just really don't like that. They just don't, so they're less likely to come back to that spot if you've upped the biological activity. And it also helps to mitigate some of the negative effect of orange oil. Orange oil, you know, you, it ain't like where the dog's been peeing for three years and it's all dead. But it can knock back some vegetation a little bit, and this helps to offset it. Uh, and, it and what you can do to even offset that even further is you can treat it with just straight orange oil, wait a couple days, and just really water the hell out of it and dilute it. Because once they're dead, they're dead. It's not a persistent agent. So that's another approach you can take. Now, here's a crazy thing, especially for you, those of you guys with smaller lawns. If in the spring you will apply dry molasses, dry, not, not the, the liquid molasses like you make your, your, your drenches out of, but if you will try apply dry molasses at a rate of about 40 pounds per 1,000 square feet, not only will that do wonders for your lawn and your plants and the soil microorganisms, it makes your place less attractive to fire ants which seems completely ridiculous to me because you would think that the damn things would eat it because it's sugar, and ants like sugar. But I can tell you the places where we've done sheet mulching, and we've done both a drench and a, a dusting of dry molasses, we don't have fire ants for a couple years at a time before they'll come back into that area. I have three acres. I just can't see putting that much dry molasses out It just would be prohibitive cost-wise, but homeowners with, you know, tenth of an acre, quarter acre yards, it seems to me that just using a Scott spreader and spreading dry molasses every spring, is it'd be fertilizing your lawn and chasing away the fire ants. And when I first heard Howard Garrett, uh, Dirt Doctor, who's the Garrett Juice guy I'm talking about, say that, I thought he was full of shit. I mean, I really did. I'm like, bull crap. You're not going to put sugar out and make ants go away. Turns out, man's been doing it since the 70s. He knows what he's doing, and it works. So there's another strategy you can take. And anything you do with a good, solid, organic lawn program, uh, dry molasses, cornmeal, uh, rock minerals, all that stuff, anything that improves the fertility of soil, uh, makes things less less hospitable to, uh, to fire ants. And I always wondered why... In my garden beds, when I used to do raised beds, the ants would always nest just outside the garden bed because it's wet there, and that's what dragged them there. But they almost never nested in the garden bed. They would they would come right like if you had a board, you know, your your boards to make your raised bed, they'd be just on the outside, like heaved up against there. And of course, if you didn't see them, you get all tore up by them. But uh, it's because that higher fertility in that garden soil, they generally don't really appreciate all those happy-go-lucky microbes in there and all those little uh, 
beneficial nematodes that are too small for them to even see, so they can't fight against them, destroying their larvae and their eggs. So anyway, you can make your own antifuego, or you can find it in smaller places. Um, next one, uh, who is this? Jeez, uh, didn't give his name. Uh, said... Thanks for the link. It was another question I asked, asked for him. He said, quick question. My wife and I are looking into a three-acre lot. It comes with a house already. It's on a well and septic. What are your thoughts on well and septic? Is that something reliable? What are the differences between the city and water sewer? Uh, can it be a problem in the future? So the answer is it depends, uh, as, I, as I so often give. But I have now lived in five houses, and three of them were well and septic, and only two of them were on water. Is that right? Yeah. Two of them were on city water and city sewer. In general, I prefer to be on well and septic. However, this is the, it depends. How old is it and what shape is it in? So if it's a, like if somebody, you know, put this in in the last 10 years, you've probably got 30 years or more service out of both of them. If it's 30 or 40 years old, like my stuff here, you know, things start to go south. On the septic, is it anaerobic or aerobic? And what I mean by that is, it, is it a system that basically just has uh, under, under, uh, under the soil lateral lines that are like a French drain, and in any septic you're going to have a solid and a liquid tank. So when you flush your toilet, your poo goes into and all that stuff goes, everything goes into the solid tank, and then you end up with a, a second tank is where just water flows. And if everything's working right, that water in that second tank should be clear. It may not smell good, but it's clear. If it's dark, something's not working the way it's supposed to. So all your solids break down and your liquids move on to the next tank. And then that tank, something has to be done with it. One type of system, there's basically sprinklers that go off a few times a day, and they spray that water on your lawn. Some soils, that's required. In other systems, you have just basically lines that run under underground. Um, both of them have their, their ups and downs, but how old they are, what technology they were built with, how well they're functioning now, all of that matters. With a well, um, there are wells that have been in the ground a long time. The well we had in Arkansas was such an old model. There was a module that basically was what turned it on, like a switching module. And it was only like a $150 part, but they weren't making them anymore. And when I found that out, the guy had two in stock. I had, a I had a lightning strike, and this module was out in the pump house itself. Unlike where I have it now, it's done properly. It shouldn't really be in the pump house. The one I have now, it's a similar type. It's a newer model, so I'm not in danger of never getting one again. But it's indoors. So that module's in my master bathroom in the water closet in there where the heater and all it's, the pressure tanks and everything is. So, But it works the same way. You just pull this thing out. And it basically the well will shut off. Well, if it fries, it won't it won't pump. Well, so if you have an older well, you got to find out do they do they make the parts that commonly go bad in it? It's a little harder when you have a problem. Let's say that you have a problem with your sewer line with the city. You're responsible for where the pipe exits your home to where it connects to the to the the, the, the city infrastructure out just right at the side of the road. That's where you're responsible for. It. About the only two things that can happen is that pipe can get broken or clogged. In all but the most extreme situations, you're talking about a couple hundred bucks to fix it. If your septic system dies and needs to be fully replaced, you're looking at five to seven thousand dollars. So you see the difference there. 
with a well. You're responsible from the water meter to your house. Again, that pipe can either get broken or clogged. And it probably ain't ever, I've never seen one of those get clogged. But they can get broken, so you got to fix it. Not that hard. It could be a mess, it could be a problem, but in the end, there's a, unless you're like jackhammering sidewalks or something, it's just not that complicated to fix. But if your well goes out, it could be thousands of dollars. So that's, that's how you have to look at the long-term cost issue. However, I've never let it be a reason to not buy a house, but... I want it inspected, and I want to know when it was installed, and I want to know what's there in that pre-purchase inspection. And I want to factor that in, and if there's anything that's not the best, it's going to be one of the negotiating tactics I'm going to use to get the seller to reduce the price. When we went in, we looked at this, we found this, this, this well's 25 years old. They don't make parts for it anymore. Cost of replacement's this. Yes, it works now, but I'm taking a risk. There's a couple thousand bucks back in your pocket, and that well might last 20 more years. You don't know, right? But that's one of those types of things to do. So that's kind of the, the approach that I'm taking. If they're newer, uh, newer installed stuff, I mean, you're generally looking at between 30 and 50 years of life expectancy on a, on a septic system if you use things properly. Like, you can over... you can. It all depends on the size of your family, etc. It's good to get some professional advice based on the size of the system and how you're going to be using your home. Uh, there's things like I've seen a lot of people, what they'll do is they take their washing machine and they'll push that to a, a true gray water system, and then all of that's not going through your septic. Don't be dumping fat. I mean, septic, if you have a septic system and you're dumping grease down your sink, you're just asking for trouble. I mean, you're asking for trouble anyway, and you really shouldn't do it anyway, but you're really asking for trouble with a septic system. So I guess the way to put it in summary, if it's a septic and a well, treat it like you own it because you do. So there you go. Uh, where if it's the city delivering it to you, you're their customer and they own it. Um, next one. This is, from again, from John Amore Park, and he says solar installers could should offer... Rooftop customers even more savings by bundling solar panels with heat pumps and other electric home devices, according to a recent study by Rocky Mountain Institute. Now, I'm not for brevity. I'm not going to read the article to you, but the, the the point being here that you can go in and include the heat pump as part of the installation of a solar assembly today, uh, and run the heat pump off of solar. And over, let's say, I think it was over. 20 years save about $24,000 in the total cost of everything involved versus paying the electric bill and, and what have you. Uh, but the outlay for that particular installation was $15,000 more. So you might think, well, that's going to prevent that from becoming a thing. Even though it makes sense. I still got to come up with 15 grand. Well, how many people go out and buy a $50,000 car for $50,000? Financing, baby, capitalism to the rescue. The way, and it's just going to take a mental shift for people to understand this, it's the same but different, man, right? Um, the way people factor their lives around electricity today is this is how much my monthly electric bill is on average, and this is how much I pay. And if you can do an installation like this and that person's monthly cost is the same or less, and they end up ahead overall, That's where everybody's going to start going. And as more and more people do this, 
it's going to become a defining factor when somebody goes to buy a house. Oh, this is all just all old on-grid stuff. There's no solar. There's no solar heat pump. What the hell, man? Guy down the road, he has that stuff, and his house is priced about the same. Because remember what I always say about buyers in real estate. All buyers are settlers. Even multimillionaires are settlers. That guy says, I'm going to buy a $1.5 million house. What does he buy? The best house he can find for $1.5 million or less. Which means, in the end, he's going to settle. So if you're buying a $150,000 or a $1.5 million or a $15 million home, you're always settling. So long term, I'm not saying to go out and do this tomorrow, but long term, when this becomes more, as, as this becomes more mainstream, it's going to start becoming a, 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 a thing that buyers are making decisions on, even in re relatively similar priced homes, because of the cost of ownership and the cost of control. And the cost of all this stuff is plummeting. And we are getting to a point, I know some of you have, have disbelieved this, but I've been watching the numbers and they're just continuing to dwindle down. It is going to get to a point not very far into the future where almost anyone, except people that are just in a bad situation for it, they have poor solar exposure, they live where the sun never shines or something like that, most people are going to begin to install solar on their homes because it's going to be the most greedy thing they can do. It's going to put the most money back in their pocket. We're not there yet, but we're heading there. And this type of thinking, let's bundle all this stuff together. Once you can get financing for the customer on it. Now, here's the downside right now, since it's not normal. If you buy that house, you inherit the debt. So if there's a, you know 10 years of financing on a system and the homeowner's had it for five, you inherit that debt. But this, the mental switch needs to be, well, what's the total cost of electricity here? It doesn't matter who gets the check, does it? And then it's also what's the longevity of the system. These systems not just have to get less expensive. They have to build longevity that goes past how long it takes to pay for them. Because if I can pay for the system for 10 years and use it for 20 to 30, now we're starting to talk, aren't we? So, there you go. Um, let's go on to another one. Um, we have a, a headline here off CNBC. It says, Americans are flocking to these 15 cities where jobs are plentiful, wages are rising. These places aren't just growing, they're thriving. And, boy, Texas shows up here a lot. I'm not going to read the article, but, again, this is CNBC. This is not exactly the, uh, the bastion of conservative news, uh, but they're reporting some here that ain't fake news, man. This is just... You know, where people are moving. Um, number 15, Des Moines, Iowa. Um, number 14, Orlando, Florida. Number 13, Charlotte, North Carolina. Number 12, Ogden, Utah. Number 11, Houston, Texas. Number 10, McAllen, Texas. Number 9, San Antonio, Texas. Number 8, Boise, Idaho. Number 7, Dallas, Texas. Number 6, Denver, Colorado. Number 5, Nashville, Tennessee. Number 4, Charleston, South Carolina. Number three, Raleigh, North Carolina. Number two, Provo, Utah. Number one, Austin, Texas. Now, with the exception of Colorado, and Colorado better than a lot, the thing that all of these places have in common with their state-level um, legal, legal issues is they're very loosely regulated states. They are states where it is with, with very low or no state 
tax on business uh, and, or, and very low or no state tax on individuals. And Colorado, again, Colorado's got some issues, but overall, they're probably in the top half at least. So it's the one exception kind of to the rule. The rest of these are all extremely low regulation and low tax environments. Uh, really, you got, when you, when you look at the whole thing, you've got Utah, you got Texas, you got the Carolinas, you got Tennessee, you got Idaho, and Iowa. That's, that's what you got. Did I say Utah? Yeah, and Florida slipped one in there. I mean, Florida, no income tax. I mean, So it's very clear that in a republic, the concept of low regulations and low taxes and money going where it's treated well works. What we have with the federal government, though, is really an attempt to, to level the playing field between the states when you have very high income taxes and, and things like that from the federal government and, and onerous federal regulations that tell people what they have to do in their state instead of the state telling them what they have to do. You reduce republicanism. And say what you want about Donald Trump, but cutting federal income taxes and reducing what I would call anti-federalism deductions. So what is an anti-federalism deduction? It's something that lets a state rape its people, but then reduces the federal tax burden for that person so the state can get away with it. And what I mean by that is people paying $40,000 in, in, in friggin' property taxes in New York, but then being able to deduct all of that money from their federal income tax, which they can't do anymore. So when, when, and I said this when that tax plan came out and passed, it will increase federalism. And it will increase, I'm sorry, it will, it will increase republicanism. That's what I meant to say. It will increase republicanism. This is supposed to be a republic. And that means that the member states are supposed to be almost like little countries that are federated together in a federation for common commerce and for common defense. That's really what this government is supposed to be. And people all the time, I'm, I'm tired of it, honestly, where you know, some will say, well, something about democracy. It's not a democracy. It's a republic. You know what our government is if you want the, the complete, accurate definition of our government? Our government is a representative democracy in the form of a republic. If you want to be technically accurate, the person that says it's a republic is accurate. The person that says it's a democracy is accurate. It's not a pure democracy. However, there's almost never been a country that's been a pure democracy anyway. A pure democracy is everything is voted on and the majority always gets what they want. China's a republic. North Korea's a republic. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, USSR, for those who are old enough to remember when that existed, is a republic. Russia is a republic. Being a republic is not magic. It is the form of the republic that matters. And if the form of the republic is that the federal government has very little to do with the daily lives of citizens, then you have a, a lot of republicanism within that republic. Because now the move from Georgia to Washington or Washington to Georgia has a much larger impact on my life. The more the federal government mandates that all the states do something or tries to create a a balance when a state overtaxes its people by letting the people then deduct that tax, 
then the less of a republic you have, the less of a true republicanism you have, and the less the choice to move matters. And it's very clear why the federal government would want to do that. If they do that, they have more control. And the states that are the ones that do stupid shit like it. So you get the people from those states and those states on board. And all you got to do, all you got to do is look at the states that are generally solid Democrat in the elections. And gee, what a surprise. They're the ones with the highest taxes and the most regulations. Now, you know me, I'm not telling you to go vote Republican. I'm making an observation. You look at your most highly regulated and highly taxed states. What are they? California, Washington, Oregon, Illinois, and then the whole northeastern mess. New Jersey, New York, New England states, Massachusetts, right? Look Look at a map. Look at an election map. Big government, high taxes, that's that's where you're at. And and really the reason you had the concept of a Republican versus a Democrat party was that the Republican party was supposed to be for what? Small government, limited federal intervention. And the republic itself. That's not what it is today. That's what it's supposed to be for. And in general, when people make that choice, when they think that they have to ch- take one side of the dichotomy, People that are for smaller government and less federal infringement on their individual rights choose Republican over Democrat. And people that want the government to take a bigger role in people's lives from the federal level, they vote Democrat. That's not a judgment. And I know some people are getting their noses bent right now, but that's that's just the way the chips fall. Now, I don't think either party lives up to its promises, but that's a different thing altogether. But these states and these particular cities are exploding because of a combination of them taking these pro-business practices, limited regulation practices. I mean, if you're going to get sued as a company, one of the best states to be in if you're being sued as a company is Texas. That alone is bringing companies here. The litigious society we live in, that's why a lot of these companies move their headquarters, one of the main reasons, from California to Texas. Getting sued in California sucks. But guess what? If my corporate headquarters is here, and you want to sue the whole company, not just a dealership or something like that, then you got to come to Texas and sue me. And it's a lot better position to be in as a company in Texas. I'm just saying. So that's, that's where this is all kind of come down and... The big fear that people always have, and it's a legitimate fear, is all these people coming to these places will try to change it into the very thing they ran away from. And they often do because there's... And, and all you got to do to know if that's going to happen is find out why people are coming. When people lose jobs, can't find a job, and get an offer and go because they got a job... If that happens long enough, that place is going to change and be more like the place most of those people are coming from. If the majority of people you talk to that are coming to a place say, I didn't like it there anymore. I didn't like being taxed. I didn't like the regulations. I didn't like what it was like to run a business there, so I came here. Those people tend not to change the place that they ran away from. Because they actually ran away. A lot of these other people, they're not running away. They're running to anything, a job. They don't even make the connection in their head. There's a reason there's so many damn jobs in Texas. There's a reason there's such a decline in jobs in a place like New Jersey and so many in Texas. 
There's a reason that renting a U-Haul one way from Los Angeles to Dallas costs about three times what it costs to rent one from Dallas to Los Angeles. U-Haul knows if it goes from Dallas to Los Angeles and you want it back in Dallas, it's coming back. U-Haul also knows if it goes from Los Angeles to Dallas, it's not coming back. It's going to be very hard to ever get that truck back to L.A. Because there's a, a movement, and it's been going a long... I talked about that fact nine years ago. That's how long this has been going. The Trump tax policy has turned this up to a high degree. And remember, they screwed us. All the people, all of us that got the tax cuts, what Pelosi called crumbs, what she didn't point out, which is actually the important thing, isn't their crumbs. It's not crumbs. You don't get a huge tax cut when you don't have a huge tax bill. That's not how it works, right? But you, you know, when a, when a person that's only paying $10,000 a year in income tax, an actual income tax, gets a $1,500 cut in taxes, that's 15% of the taxes you were paying. That's significant. But guess what? Yours is temporary. They expire in seven, well, six years now. The companies are making the bets because it would actually take a new law to undo what was done for them. We got a temporary tax cut. Theirs is as permanent as it can be in our society. And you're seeing it work itself out here. My concern, I say this all the time, what? Everything in the world, everything in the universe is a cycle. And so... This cycle moving toward more freedom and at least economic freedom and regulatory freedom will swing the other way eventually. And, you know, the left looks like they're just digging their heels in to go headlong into full on socialism. But don't worry, it'll be Democrat socialism, which means everybody gets a unicorn that farts rainbows. And when the unicorn farts a rainbow, your magic, uh, amazing guardian angel will slide down the rainbow and grant you three wishes up to three times a day. That's what them, that's the promise of democratic socialism. Not gonna work out that way, guys. So, uh, make your money and build your life while you have the opportunity. Right now is one of the best opportunities we've ever had. And God, before I get the hate mail, no, this is not pro-Trump. This is pro-lower taxes and pro-less regulations. I'll tell you what, if, if Barack Obama would have lowered my taxes and reduced regulations, I would have said he got that right. He just didn't do it. I, I would say anybody that does that gets that right. Because what do I want? I want none of it. So Anyway, let's go on. So Alan from Pennsylvania, not quite my old stomping grounds. He's from Southwest PA over by the Pittsburgh area. He says, how do you keep fish you catch till you get it home? Southwest Pennsylvania fishing game on lakes. On a good day, we might catch five to ten keeper bluegills in several hours. Dad always used a stringer and hooked them through the jaw. Worked okay till the boat went through shallow water. A snapper found a stringer under the boat. When I was a kid, um, some years, well, decades ago, uh, Dad just tossed fish in a boat hauled it home. We're only an hour from home, but they say dead fish don't keep. Weather's hot right now, 80s and 90s. Yeah, I know it's hot for here. I have an old igloo-insulated lunchbox. Could fill with ice. Good idea. Would you gut and clean them first? Didn't fish as much uh, for a lot of years, but Dad likes fishing, and he's 86, so we're going when we can. By the way, Dad enjoyed your podcast on bow hunting for deer. I remember him telling me 40 years ago about the 20 bird, uh, Tweety Bird perching on his arrow shaft. Your retelling of that had him laughing. Uh, Dad can't hunt anymore, not standing on his legs in the woods. I know he misses it. Been an MSB member for years now and really value the podcast, Alan in Southwest PA. Uh, I answered Alan by email, but I thought I would cover this here because 
I want to cover it two different ways. One, keeping them fresh and edible. But when I first read it, because I didn't even think that would be something somebody would really worry too much about, um, I, I thought he meant keep them alive like I do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that, too, if you're catching them for your aquaponics system or something like that and ha having to go more than, a, than a, you know, a little distance. So one of the things that you could do to keep them alive, especially you're talking some bluegills and stuff like that, um, a floating minnow bucket, especially the, the yellow and white ones with the hinged door, you know, all but the biggest bluegill in the world will fit inside there and just a string on that, throw it in the water. Stringers work just fine to keep them alive. And th these are both really methods that would be more for the fact that you're going to uh, use them as a food fish. And then when you, when you go to go home, you can just throw them on the cooler. Now, I'm going to give you a couple different thoughts here. If you want to clean your fish in the field, I don't see any reason not to do it. Go ahead and do it. And whether that's gutting and scaling or, or filleting, just go ahead and do it. Bring some bags along, put the clean fish in bags, and throw it on ice. Okay. If you want to clean them at home because you just, I want to be done fishing, I want to go home, then you just need cooler and ice. And you can just throw them in there alive, and they'll just kind of metabolically shut down and die. I know some people don't like that, and if it makes you feel better to stab them in the head with a knife or whack them with a club, go ahead. I just throw my fish on the freaking ice. When we go fishing, and you see these pictures, like when we're out with Omar Cotter at Lucky Little Irish Guide Service, and you see us with 75 sand bass, we just have a live well full of about three or four big bags of ice, and we just throw them in there with the ice. That's all we do, and when we get back to the thing, Omar fillets them up for us, we throw them in fish bags, and we throw that in a cooler full of ice, and we bring it home. That said, especially with larger fish, if you throw a fish on ice and it begins to basically die of hypothermia, what any living creature will do as it begins to get colder and colder and colder is it will pull its blood into its internal organs. That's why you get frostbite on your hands and feet first. Because as you really begin to get chilled and your body tries to preserve itself, it starts circulating your blood less and trying to keep your heart and your lungs and your brain going. So some fish that can be kind of bloody, if you throw them on ice when they're alive, you can do this with small sharks, for instance, if we get into saltwater fishing. You don't have to bleed them out. You just throw, And I know people are going to tell me, no, you don't know nothing about sharks. And I'm telling you, this is what everybody in southwest Florida is doing with black tips now. I've seen it. As long as the damn thing's small enough to fit in an ice box, they're taking the live shark, throwing his ass right on the ice, burying him in ice, and then they just fillet him off, leave the guts in him, and there's no blood in the meat and none of that ammonia stink that sharks get. I know, it's crazy, but it's true. And some of these, and I, I've tried it with like jacks and bluefish and stuff where the meat can be bloody, and it works as good or better than bleeding them out. Now, here's the exception. If you're at saltwater fish and you're going to use them for a sashimi or ceviche, they should be immediately gutted and put on ice. There are some parasites that live in the gut track of some marine fish that can be a little bit of a problem. You're probably not going to die or get brain worms or whatever, but there are some parasites that if, you, if you're going to not cook the fish, They live in the gut, and as the fish dies, they leave the gut, and they go to the flesh. So by immediately gutting them and throwing that fish on ice, it stays safe to use as a sushi, sashimi, ceviche product. Don't 
make sushi, sashimi, or ceviche with freshwater fish. I know some people do it. At, at the least, you're risking tapeworms and some other things you really don't want that are far worse. So all you got to do is ice your fish. And it don't matter if you ice them alive, gutted, or filleted. Just ice your fish and don't worry about it. It's fine. When I used to fish Joe Pool Lake like four or five times a week, this is back before I started the show, uh, so this is more than ten years ago, I would be out till dark. So I'd, I'd finish up work about 4.30 and I'd go out to the lake. And I wouldn't get home till like 8 o'clock at night. I don't want to clean fish. I'd just throw some more ice in the cooler and I'd leave them overnight. Guts in them and all. They were always fine. It was never a problem. And those were mostly catfish and uh, white bass. So if it's iced, it's safe. Now, just on a thought here, some of you might want to know how to get your fish home alive for your aquatic systems and things like that. So basically what I do, if I'm just fishing a creek or a small pond or something like that, where I'm going to be far enough from my truck that I don't want to constantly be going back there, I take two five-gallon buckets, and I take one bucket and I drill a whole bunch of like quarter-inch holes in it, like a bait bucket. And I just sit it in the water with the lid on it so the fish can't jump out of it. So it's just sitting in the water. And maybe throw a rock in the bottom of it if it needs it to keep it from washing away or something like that. And I just put my fish in there. And then the reason I have the second bucket is when I go to leave, I take the bucket without the holes and I fill it up with water. I pull the one out of the lake, let the water drain out of it, and I put it in the other bucket. And then I just have a little thing called the bubble box. I've featured it on uh, T-Spaz quite a few times. I'll put a link in the show notes for you guys today if you want to get one. And it's a little aerator. runs on D batteries. runs for days on D batteries. And I have a little hole, about you know a quarter-inch, half-inch hole in the lid of the bucket. And you just put your air stone through there and attach your air, your air pump on the side of it. And that's generally good for getting a reasonable amount of fish home in, let's say, where you're going to drive for 30 minutes or less. But this is stressful for fish. It is. So if you know if you put 50 or 100 bluegills in a five gallon bucket with that air, they'll live in the lake in the bait bucket style. But when you put try to get them home with an airstone and you're on the road for an hour, you're going to get home a lot of floating fish. That's just too much waste and too small amount of water. What we do when we want larger amounts of fish and have longer drives, we take a big 100 gallon igloo cooler, put it in the back of the truck, and we take a small water fall style uh, pond pump with just a piece of PVC pipe on it and an overflow like you would do for a, like a spray bar for a, a live well. And we just set that in there and I just plug it into my Stephen Harris battery bank, uh, battery bank that's in my, my truck. If you don't have one of those, you could use something like one of the uh, jump start packs, the 12 volt jump start packs or something like that. Or you could just use a, uh, a trolling battery with an inverter because those little pumps don't take that much. I mean, you're not going to be doing this for days, right? So a, a, a trolling motor battery, a deep socket marine battery, and an inverter will run one of those little pumps for hours without being recharged. And that's the best way we've found to get a lot of fish home is the 100-gallon igloo coolers closed up with a, with a little waterfall pump in them. So that answered it more than one way. So hopefully this was a good show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I said we didn't have a... Uh, a listener feedback show last week. Kind of missed doing it. So glad to catch up with you guys this week. Let me re remind you real quick here that one of the ways that you can help support us is do your online shopping. Where? 
at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. I have a lot of product there that I have uh, reviewed, and I feature a new product every day. Today I'm uh, featuring Frontier Co-op's Organic Valerian Root. And uh, this is red valerian. This is um, a sedative herb. And I started using it about two, two and a half years ago. I decided to come up with a tea to help you go to sleep. And I wanted something that would you know, rival a prescription medication in its effectiveness, but not in many of the negative ways. I wanted something, if you drank a cup or two of this, unless something was really, really wrong in your life, you were going to go to sleep. And this is what I came up, and I've got links to all the product here in addition to the valerian. Three parts valerian root, three parts demania leaf, two parts passion flower, two parts peppermint, one part mugwort, and one part rose petals. And this stuff, if you do it, um, if you do it the right way, it's extremely effective. I can't explain why. But if you drink a couple cups of this stuff in like 15 minutes, you are freaking ready to go to out. If you don't, and this is where it differs from like a pharmaceutical, if 45 minutes later you're still diddling around, it just wears off and doesn't work. But if you go to sleep, you flat sleep your ass off and you have some pretty intense dreams too. Uh, if you go to sleep right away. So save it for like that nighttime ritual. And uh, so I give the whole recipe there and I tell you where you can find uh, Demania. Now Demania, you can't get it on Amazon And it's illegal in certain states, Louisiana, because Louisiana just makes everything illegal. Um, some people consider it kind of like a, an alternative to a narcotic or something like that. It doesn't have anywhere near that kind of effect. You can make this tea without it, and it works just fine. People in, like I said, Louisiana want to make everything illegal. Everything's the devil or something. I, I don't know. Um, but Demania is a pretty good herb in of itself, and I have two sources for you in the article Um, if you wanted to do a completely simplified version of this, it still works really good. Two parts valerian and one part mint. I will say the one thing about this tea. This is not a yummy, delicious tea. It's not. Um, it doesn't taste bad, but it has... The only term I can use for this is gym socks. But it's way in the back. It doesn't taste bad when you drink it, but there's like a flavor you don't really like, and it's a gym sock type characteristic. Some people tell me they don't know what I'm talking about and they love this stuff. I don't think valerian in of itself tastes very well, but it does work really well. It's very effective, and I'm always for using herbals when we can. So check it out. Remember, anytime you shop through tspaz.com, you help us. And everything that's on tspaz I own, I use, I spent my own money on, or it wouldn't be there, and I wouldn't recommend it to you. Also, if you like supporting the show, MSB. I won't say anything about that today other than go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members, and learn about it. And if you sign up, you'll get your money back in discounts. Uh, next up, let's talk about our song of the day. We're going to have a really cool uh, week of music this week. These are going to all be songs you've heard before, unless you've lived under a rock for the last 50 years. Um, but they're going to be by a guy you've probably never heard of. His name is James Dupree. And he plays a, what's a, a guitar called a harp guitar. This thing, the bottom of it kind of looks like a normal guitar, and then it's got a top that's more harp-like, and it's got two separate uh, sets of strings and frets. And this guy is talented. Very, very talented musician. 
And he's doing quite well for himself. I think he has something like 127,000 subscribers on YouTube. I don't know how John Adam found this guy, but I really like him. The song he's going to do for us today is California Dreamin'. This is all, again, acoustic guitar. He does some electric guitar stuff and some other things, too, but his real claim to fame is this acoustic harp guitar. And it's just beautiful music. It doesn't sound like one person playing. It sounds like two people harmonizing together. It, it, it's really incredible. And I want you to enjoy the music this week, but I also want you to think about this. The opportunity that I keep talking about that's out there is real for people. What would this guy have had to do to try to make a career out of his music 20 years ago? Go beg Sony BMG to let him in the door? Go sign his soul over? A guy with his work ethic and his talent and his music building a life for himself as a musician using social media and free distribution. Check him out, man. James Dupree. Again, the cover is of California Dreamin'. we got some really cool ones coming this week. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>